Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 198. In this episode, we're talking about a disabled apostle with Dr. Isaac Soon. Dr. Isaac Soon is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Crandall University in New Brunswick, Canada, and the author of the book that we're excited to talk about in this episode, A Disabled Apostle, Impairment and Disability in the Letters of Paul, published by Oxford University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Dr. Grace Sangalang Ng, and me, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this conversation with Dr. Soon, it was great to return to the topic of disability, which is how we started the year. We ha- we did a 17-part series on disability and theology. It began in January. It ran through the beginning of May, episodes 154 to 171. And so it was great to circle back and talk more about the cultural model of disability and these sorts of things. And in Dr. Soon's work, he really kind of focuses on three areas of Paul's embodiment, circumcision, uh, demonization, and short stature. And it was really interesting to hear Dr. Soon talk about these topics in terms of disability, which is maybe not where our mind might uh, go entirely. And maybe there's some surprises there for for listeners, um, which 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 is just some of the intriguing aspects of uh, Dr. Soon's uh, new book, thinking about how how ancient people would have stigmatized these conditions in in ways that that are akin to how disabilities were stigmatized, which is a really interesting conversation. What were some of the takeaways that uh, you both had, Grace and Grace, from our conversation with Dr. Soon? I think what I really enjoyed about that conversation was um, Dr. Soon's ability to make Paul strange, um, which I mean, I think, you know, there's so much literature and Paul's texts are so familiar. And I think it's um I think Dr. Seen's perspective is really helpful for just helping us to look at that afresh um, and the way that he uses disability studies to do that sort of homing in on these different themes um, around topics that we might not naturally identify as disability in a kind of contemporary context. Um, and so that framework is really useful for helping us to unpack, you know, what does disability mean? How how might that be understood in the ancient world? And how does that kind of impact how we read Paul's letters as a result? So I think he just brings such a kind of um, sort of fresh perspective to some very kind of well-worn topics in Paul um, that's, that's very helpful. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I really loved how Dr. Soon talked about Paul um, as a complex person and all of the different aspects of him. Um, I don't think uh, I really thought about Paul like that before. You know, we just see him as this, like, figure, you know, that's like the amazing apostle and stuff. And so, yeah, seeing him, um, like, with disabilities and, you know, some of how maybe his trauma has affected him too. Um, I think that's really helpful um, just living in the world today um, and all the complexities that we experience. And if you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Isaac Soon. Well, Dr. Soon, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. 
So we're really excited to talk about your new book, A Disabled Apostle with OUP. How about we just begin by hearing about the thesis that you're um, arguing in this book? Yeah, I'll try to remember. It's uh, uh, hard to remember <laughs> when a book comes out and you see it in physical form, but you you forget um, uh, what it is. Uh, the book is really looking at Paul's letters or a number of themes in Paul's letters um, in conversation with critical disability studies, um, especially as mediated through um, other biblical scholars. So I'm heavily influenced by, you know, um, a lot of Old Testament scholars like uh, Jeremy Skipper, um, Rebecca Raphael, Canada Moss, um, Louise Gosbell, a lot of these uh, people working, engaging with critical disability studies, but then a lot of it has, had been done in Old Testament. And there are, you know, smatterings of it in New Testament, but Paul, as a, in kind of a long form, had not really been touched. Or it had been kind of left as a, a topic that people didn't really think we could access because they didn't think we had much bodily information about him to talk about it. Um, so the thesis of the book really simply explores three disabilities uh, that I argue Paul may have had, I think. Um, so one of them is circumcision. Another is um, his thorn in the flesh, which I interpret to be a kind of angel of Satan or some kind of demonic uh, force or presence. And then uh, his short stature uh, or possibly dwarfism. Um, uh, yeah, so exploring those themes in Galatians and Philippians and Corinthians in their wider kind of Jewish and Greco-Roman background. And even though it's a very historical work, it's also, I think it's it's very constructive theologically. Um, so I have chapters reflecting on how Paul uses his disabilities in his own text. So for example, his use of circumcision and his stereotyping of circumcision, um, but then also his use of his own short stature as kind of um, self-deprecating, um, but also worryingly kind of self-harm-like uh, in some of the Corinthian letters. And just kind of this complex portrait of, you know, he has, he might have these disabilities, but it's not peripheral to understanding his text. But I think, I don't think it's central, you know, I'm not going to make a outrageous claim, but I think it is part and parcel of um, important for understanding uh, uh, his writings. And it's not just kind of uh, a, a silly question. Isaac, would you tell us a bit about, um, I guess, how critical disability studies is working in your work? And then maybe that would lead us into unpacking the sort of three areas that you've mentioned um, in your book. Yeah, great question. So um, disability studies in the humanities has kind of reflected, I use a kind of three model basis. So in the past, there have been uh, three major ways of thinking about disability. So one of them is the medical model or the biomedical model, which is very much thinking about disability in terms of an individual a condition um, uh, apart from any kind of social factors. And then uh, another model is um, the social model of disability, quite common, which is thinking about not just the individual uh, condition of a person's body, but also the kind of um, social uh, uh, barriers that happen. Um, so architectural barriers, right, from, from uh, access to a building, you know, if you if you work at a university where there's no steps going up, um, to a financial uh, aid, you know, if you need medical procedures, but you, you know, you don't have access to uh, health care. Um, 
those kind of social elements. Um, the humanities and a lot of the writers that I draw on are heavily influenced by what's called the cultural model of disability. Um, cultural models are a little bit tricky because everyone has their own kind of iteration of it. And I combine both social and cultural models in my book, um, drawing on a couple of, a lot of biblical scholars use the cultural model, which basically looks at uh, disability, not just from as something that is uh, people or people with disabilities, not as just something that is acted upon, right? So social factors or biological factors, but also something as, as, um, as people with disabilities as agents in their own world. So affecting culture, generating culture themselves. And so in my project oscillates between this kind of social, the creation, the, the effect of uh, society in limiting and stigmatizing people with disabilities, but then also the agency that people with disabilities exert and the influence they have on, on cultures itself. And uh, yeah, I'm heavily influenced by uh, a scholar, Anne Waldschmidt um, in Europe, kind of has a sociocultural uh, model which kind of blends between the two. So that's how I approach the project. Um, some people will object and will notice that I really don't engage with a lot of disability theology or disabil disabled theologians, um, mostly because I'm trying to, I want my work to be a product for, that's generative for disabled uh, theologies or a theology that's thinking about disability. And I think there, there are questions that I address in the book, like for example, will future resurrected bodies retain disability? That's, I think, a disability theology question. I address those questions, but I'm not led by the same types of questions as disability theology because I didn't want to, um, I wanted to kind of examine Paul in his kind of ancient historical context first, and then, um, you know, in a later project, revisit it with a more theological contemporary questions in mind. Always get excited to hear you talk about future projects. So there we go, a little, <laughs> little teaser for the pod. <laughs> Add it to the list. <laughs> Um, is it worth sort of diving into, so you mentioned sort of circumcision, demonization and short stature uh, or maybe dwarfism. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about your sort of journey thinking through those themes and the texts that, that underpin them? Yeah, so I mean, so circumcision, uh, these are some of the few um, physical descriptions we get of Paul. This project really or originated when I was thinking about um uh, what did Paul look like? Um, I was heavily influenced by a great article. I have it here, but no one will be able to see it. But by Jennifer Glancy on um, boasting of beatings. Uh, it's a JBL article from 2004. And it really got me thinking about, well, what information do we have in his letters or in the letters under his name that kind of suggest what, uh, what he might have looked like? And circumcision is an, an easy, easy thing to pass. So in Philippians 3, 5, he mentions that he's circumcised on the eighth day. Um, not many people study the New Testament wanting to think about the genitals of the apostle, but it is a part of um, uh, his body. And I think we don't need to be squeamish about that, especially since it's a, such an important symbol in ancient Judaism. So Philippians 3, 5 is a key text for that. Another key text, which you, Dr. Emmett, have worked on a lot, um, is 2 Corinthians 12, or 2 Corinthians 12 uh, verse 7, so the thorn in the flesh, uh, this angel of Satan. Um, and that's where I talk about demonization. And then the last text is um, also in 2 Corinthians, at the end of uh, chapter 11, Paul is kind of in this long hardship catalog about, you know, 
I've been whipped 139 times and I've been hit by the rods and I've been stoned and shipwrecked and anxiety for churches. And, you know, also there was this one time when I was let down the wall in a basket. Um, and one day, you know, when my kids were climbing all over me and I was trying to think of, I read this text, I was thinking, well, how, how big do you have to be to get into a basket or to be able to fit in a basket that goes down the wall? And so this kind of got me on a rabbit trail thinking about, well, what if Paul's size is actually much smaller? And I kind of um, probe that because we have an early Christian text, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, where there's a physical description of Paul. You know, he's um, he has a monobrow. He kind of has an aquiline nose. So, you know, very kind of sharp Jane Austen, uh, 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 Elizabeth Bennett nose, or no, Jane, uh, Jane Bennett nose. Um but then it says he's bow-legged and then he's short. Um, and that word mikros in the Greek, uh, when it's it, it's not just kind of a general shortness. It, it is um, in a lot of ancient Greek literature and Roman literature, kind of shortness is pathologized or it's stigmatized. Um, so I argue that it's possible based on this kind of connection here and the size of the basket, very strange argument, um, but uh, based on the size of the basket that Paul might have uh, been short statured or uh, possibly had dwarfism. Um, yeah. So what would the ancients think about uh, the three different um, areas of disability, um, like with circumcision, dwarfism, um, and demonization? I think you touched a little bit upon the dwarfism aspect, but I'm curious about what the ancients would think about the other two. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, uh, I, of course, the ancient readers don't have the same kind of um, focus or emphasis on disability that we have today. And in my work, I'm not saying that they understand disability um, the same way. But I think we can see from our perspective, from our vantage point, um, the same dynamics of disability. And with circumcision, for Jewish people especially, circumcision in the ancient world is a really um, it's a very strange practice uh, and it's stigmatized and, and stereotyped and made fun of um, and kind of portrayed in many ways by Greek and Roman authors. I can't go into a lot of them, but even in visual media, like the only time you find circumcision um, is on uh, the bodies of uh, those who are enslaved uh, or um, uh, or so-called barbarian cultures. So there's a, a very famous portrait of um, Egyptian priests, for example, Egyptians in the ancient world, the circumcised, and um, they're portrayed as circumcised. But then there's they're also they're portrayed as kind of animalistic. Um, you know, they're they're fighting with Hercules, and the the image, the iconography, dehumanizes them. Um, and circumcision is a part of that kind of barbarianness. So. For a lot of Greek and Roman um, writers, circumcision was stigmatized, and it kind of it was one of those factors uh, amongst that that kind of um, pushed Jewish folks to the margins. And I know a lot of people working in Jewish studies. There's been a trend that has been saying, well, you know, of course, Jewish practices like Sabbath keeping or food laws or circumcision they were stigmatized, but it wasn't that bad. Um, it wasn't the kind of anti-Judaism, you know, we might see at another time. Um, in my project, I hesitate about that with that because I think it's easy for people to say, well, you know, 
today, people with disabilities, they have lots of rights, they have lots of access, you know, it's not that bad. Um, but I think the testimony of folks with disability today is actually the latent ableism in almost every structure of our world makes it extremely hard. And so I think for circumcision, I didn't want to minimize that uh, in the Greek and Roman context. Um, as for demons, um, of course, you know, we live in a very demythologized world and disenchanted world where, you know, demons are a psychological disorder um, or uh, something like that. But in the ancient world, demons are equated with diseases. They're taken for granted. And so in Jewish cultures, uh, ancient Jewish cultures, um, demons, there's a lot of effort to kind of not only protect yourself uh, from demons entering your space, right? There's incantation bowls and incantations and prayers. and But also the, there's a worry in Second Temple Judaism, not so much when we get to the Talmud and uh, later uh, rabbinic Judaism, but in the Second Temple, there's this real fear of these kind of spirits entering your body. All right, you see that in the Gospels and the, the alarm with these people who have these so-called so impure spirits or unclean spirits and, and people lose total autonomy, right? They're, they're on, the, on the cliffs, you know, uh, cutting themselves with rocks and they're naked. And so it's, kind of, it, it's another kind of, uh, the loss of autonomy is a loss of uh, humanity. So I think when Paul says these words like, you know, there's an angel of Satan in my flesh, uh, this this is alarming for readers because it's like, well, actually, okay, so then your body is affected by the spirit that somehow that really portrays his body as being extremely weak um, and, uh, you know, susceptible to these evil forces. So, yeah, that's a little bit of background. I, I, I'm doing a terrible job of summarizing. You just have to read the book. But uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of how those different disabilities resonate in the ancient Mediterranean culture. No, that's not a terrible summary at all. Thanks for that. That's uh, that's really helpful. Um, if I could follow up on the demonization uh, thing, you know, you mentioned this fear of demons entering the body and how demons were associated with certain um, illnesses and 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 there, there were specific sort of like incantations or whatever to keep demons away. Um, I, I don't recall if you bring in Galatians 4 when you talk about 1 Corinthians 12 uh, or, or 2 Corinthians 12, sorry, with the uh, thorn in the flesh. Um, but it is fascinating how in that passage in Galatians 4, when Paul talks about the weakness of the flesh, which, you know, are often conflated and there's, you know, question, are these the same thing? Are they, what what even is the weakness of the flesh or whatever? But it is fascinating. And I wonder if you could say more about this, like when Paul, you know, is talking about his initial encounter with the Galatians and how they accepted him, right? That they accepted him as an angel, even as Christ right. Jesus, which is really an interesting comment because the way he talks about what they could have done to him is it's, you know, of course, translated as, you know, you didn't despise or reject me, but in the Greek, it's my favorite Greek word, ektuo, right? Yeah. They, they didn't, they didn't spit at him, right? Yeah, which, yeah. which is presumably an apotropaic practice associated with epilepsy, but spe also specifically uh, just, you know, keep, keep the demonic oppression away, keep whatever, yeah. you know, you're bringing to us, like keep that out. Right. But like, I'm just wondering if you could say more about about the weakness of the flesh and the thorn in the flesh. Do you see those as equivalent? Uh, any kind of uh, additional thoughts you want to say? Yeah, great. And thank you uh, for doing your research on this. I mean, clearly you, you know what you're talking about here. Um, I think there definitely could be a connection between the two. I think it's just any connection that I've seen 
writing the two, like they both use the word weakness or they both use the word flesh or the fact that both, you know, texts contain the word angelos or messenger and angel. I, that's hard to connect the two together. I, I think it's plausible and I'm sure ancient readers would have understood those two together. Um, it is tantalizing, right, though, to for him to, if it is some kind of demonic force in his body and that's what's causing, that's kind of the initial thing that it causes his beginning relationship with the Galatians um, that he would have this word play and say, you know, you received me as an angel. Um, I just don't, yeah, I'm not confident that there, I can make a draw connection between the two. Um, yeah. But I think where they, where, where they do connect is just with Paul's whole, you know, um, ministry being characterized as, weakness in power right because i think that's where there is a clear connection between the two passages that even though paul is on this kind of mission to um, bring the good news to the gentiles his ministry is not like this kind of victorious uh, you know it's not the triumphal pr procession he talks about in two corinthians too but i mean he's like the slave in the tri triumphal procession he's the the spoils of war so i think that that's where there's a kind of resonating connection between the two um, but yeah, I don't really see uh, a connection. I know people will be disappointed that, that I don't talk about Galatians 4 there, but uh, yeah. Maybe only Galatians scholars. I don't know. Guy, <laughs> try to stay away from Galatians. Every passage is just like a mine for uh, uh, too many questions and, and so much scholarship. I don't know how you keep up. So I, uh, I, I consider myself, I'm like a Pauline scholar, but I consider myself mostly a New Testament tourist um very eclectic and kind of pop in when i can have a handle on whatever literature there is but uh, <laughs> you that's why you rarely see me i have very few articles on paul um just because i just can't i can't keep up with the literature there's just too much <laughs> any idiosyncratic ideas i have i'll just put in my books because uh, it's easier to pass pass peer review <laughs> strategy for surviving full line scholarship there. <laughs> uh, yeah, you mentioned, um, uh, I suppose, in terms of thinking about those two texts and how they relate to one another, this sort of broader theme of uh, Paul kind of thinking about weakness within the context of power and that sort of quoting to power or strength in some way. Um, and that sort of wonderful Pauline paradox that we encounter quite a few times in his letters. How has sort of thinking about um, Paul, through the lens of disability, shaped your sort of perspective on that paradox or changed how you see that working in Paul's letters? What do you think disability adds kind of to that quite famous Pauline paradox, if that makes sense? Yeah, really, it's a really, really good um, question and an important question. I think because the whole project is really coming to terms with Paul as an embodied apostle, mm -hmm. um, it's not just thinking about disability, approaching Paul's paradox of weakness and strength is not just about approaching it from kind of theoretical weakness. Um, I know, you know, one of my colleagues at Durham, um, Dr. Benjamin White, recently argued a lot of Paul's weaknesses in connection to grief and uh, Lupe and, and Paul's grief over dealing with the Corinthians. Um, I think dialoguing with disability uh, grounds it in, in a lot more of uh, bodily pain and the kind of the, the the question of theodicy really right like how mm. can, the basic question of how can god allow this to happen not least to paul who's doing all these things right you'd think that he would get kind of actually a free pass right like can can you make this easier but actually 
it's harder. Um, and so I think the what gives this kind of approach potency in approaching Paul's paradox through disability is that, well, you know, when Paul's talking about weakness and strength, he's not talking about, you know, just having a bad day. He's, you know, he's talking about, you know, kind of a lived experience where his body is wrapped up in and pain and he's begging God to, to release him from this pain. And, but somehow unconscionably and mysteriously without explanation, God says, well, actually, no, it's there for a reason. And it's actually the way that my power in your body is going to get perfected. Um, so it's, I think it's, yeah, it's, it, I think it's powerful like that. It's hard because it doesn't provide like the clear cut answer of, you know, God is good or God is evil, or it's going to get better or it's not going to get better. I think ancient Jews are wrestling with, you know, a lot of traumatic things in the first century and Paul's trauma is kind of overflowing onto other trauma as he follows Christ quite literally uh, in his particularly weak way. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so I think it, I think it, it validates, I think the kind of struggle for folks with disability today, especially, you know, people who are Christ followers or view Paul's text as normative, um, you know, that their own experience of struggling with a God who's powerful enough to heal, but doesn't, or uh, powerful enough to remove pain, but, you know, may not in the present, that they have, you know, a representative, even in ancient times, who's also wrestling with that. So I think that it's their voices, that they have a voice there too. It's not just, you know, an able-bodied person talking, well, it's easy for an able-bodied person to say, well, yeah, weakness and strength, you know, there's two sides of the same coin. But to have someone who's actually living in disability themselves and to be disabled and then saying those things, I think that can be, um, you know, somewhat of a small self. Yeah, I really like um, how you brought up uh, just talking about Paul, like, yeah, as an embodied whole person and talking about his um, actual lived experience um, with his disabilities um, and how that can be. Um, yeah, just really powerful for people with disabilities today. I think that's um, really cool and really helpful. Um, I did want to uh, ask a little bit more about um, dwarfism and Paul um, as he thinks about being less significant. Um, how was that uh, perceived? Like, um, how was dwarfism perceived like in the ancient world and um, like, how does stature come into play? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for this question. Dwarfism. I mean, so firstly, the category of dwarfism is, I should note, it's, it's medical, that's contemporary nomenclature. So when we, there is not a kind of condition known in the ancient world as dwarfism. Um, there are short statured people, which Greek, you know, there's the term nanos or pygmaeos. Um, and in the ancient world, it depend on it really depended on your culture. So just like in circ circumcision, circumcision in a Jewish culture, so in Judea in the first century, is it's a it's an it, you're actually able bodied, right? So it's something that men have. It's explicitly a symbol of the covenant. But if you step out of those particular communities, so you go on to I don't know Rome or something like that, or somewhere in Anatolia, then that's not going to have that same kind of positive connotation. It's going to have a negative connotation. And there's a very famous case of this um, in, a, in a kind of comedic trope or a telling of about an athlete 
uh, an athlete who steps out uh, in the gymnasium for a competition um, and people start laughing and they realize, you know, this person has a Jewish load, which is kind of a euphemism for uh, someone who's circumcised and the crowd is laughing and the commentators are talking about it. So just like that with circumcision for people with short stature, it depended on your context. So if you're in Egypt, for example, especially pre-Roman Egypt, um, uh, before the first century, uh, people with dwarfism, there were gods in Egypt uh, uh, who uh, uh, were short stature. Um, and so that kind of short stature was celebrated, um, even if there were some elements of stigmatization or, you know, the kind of objectification of them as good luck charms or apotropaic um, figures. Um, when we get to the first century, though, in Rome and in uh, Greece, uh, people with short stature are, are often, uh, you know, used for entertainment. So they're kind of the uh, lunch matinee at uh, the Colosseum. You know, um, you see a replay of the battle between uh, uh, the, quote, pygmies. That's the term in the ancient world. It's an offensive term today, but in the ancient world. And the, you know, the swans. So they'll have literally short-statured gladiators who are trained warriors and boxers, pugilists, uh, fighting animals at lunchtime in between, you know, other events. Um, they're also depicted on uh, in iconography and images as, um, uh, yeah, kind of often uh, uh, associated with uh, satyrs. Um, so if you know anything about ancient Roman and Greek satyrs, very mischievous folks um, always seem to be sexually aroused and uh, up for a drink. Um, and so, so there's this kind of stigmatization about these kind of differing bodies there. So it depends on the context. Um, we know in an ancient Jewish context that according to Leviticus, at least someone, people who are short statured or possibly who are withered, so uh, are excluded from priestly activities, but we don't have necessarily evidence that I'm aware of, and I'd be happy to be corrected on it, of people with short stature being excluded in Jewish communities. Um, so it really does depend on the location um, and the culture. And as it pertains to uh, circumcision, of course, there's also a similar dynamic where it, within Jewish culture, you know, this is a sign of the covenant, et cetera, and outside, you know, people are viewing it in a particular way. And this is really kind of like where the disability lens comes from, right? Is how everybody else is viewing circumcision outside of uh, the Jewish context. I'd love for you to say more about that, uh, especially because, you know, as I've argued, and I know you've argued as well, like Galatians, because it's all about circumcision, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for grown men, especially grown Gentile men, to want to get circumcised. Something else seems to be going on, right? Uh, and, you know, the idea that maybe they're being forced to be circumcised, I think makes a lot more sense. And I know, I know you agree with that, but I'm just curious if you could say more about this idea that, uh, that, that circumcision was viewed in a, in a particularly um, stigmatizing way that, you know, aligns with stigmas around like disability, for example. Yeah. So I, I, it's a great question. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I, your work on the uh, Galatian persecution, I think is really influential for me because I've, um, it made a lot of sense when, you know, a lot of people think, a lot of interpreters think that the Galatians are kind of 
you know, lining up to get circumcised. Like, <laughs> exactly. It's a great idea. Let's go do this. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think that, you know, uh, yeah, we won't get into that. But I, so it, it is a bit strange. The, the thing with disability studies is that what you realize is not when you when we argue that disability is socially constructed, of course, not that it's not in like actually in, that, that, not that it doesn't involve like actual flesh, but that it's culturally specific. Right. And what, what's something what might be a disability in one culture might not be a disability in another. And so with Galatians, we see this meeting of two different cultures. We see the meeting of some people who are uh, trying to get Gentile men to live as Judeans. And so there's the culture, hey, actually, you're going to be disabled in Christ, uh, from Christ's righteousness, unless you get circumcised. And then you have Paul who's saying, no, you can't do this. And then you also have the Gentiles themselves who are, you know, I love Paul Fredrickson's ex-pagan pagans, who have probably been taught their whole life that, you know, you should keep your foreskin and you need to take care of it. And you should not cut it off like those people on the end of the empire. And so I think you have this kind of nexus and meeting of all these different conceptions of what is a bodily ideal. For Paul, it's, well, if you're a Jewish person, maybe you get circumcised. But if you're Gentile, don't do it because you're going to get cut off from Christ. And there's one way back, but it's bad. Um, and you have the, the Judaizers, so-called, who are saying, you know, you know, this might not be your bodily ideal in your culture, but if you really want to, be, you know, become God's people, you need to do this. And then you have, you know, the ex-pagans family saying, what are you doing? Like, why are you uh, wanting to do this? So, so there is that kind of conflict there. And I think that explains a lot of, you know, I argue and kind of cheekily in, in one of my articles, you know, what if Galatians Paul's really mad in Galatians, right? Like, how can you be doing this? How can you turn? He's like a jilted lover. Like, how can you be turning to another gospel? Like, how dare you? Um, after all we've been through. Um, but I kind of argue cheekily in one of my articles, you know, what if the Galatians are like, we really don't want to do this. We're getting pressured to do this. Let's just ask Paul and maybe he can settle the matter for us. Um, I just don't think that Galatian men and people and men in Anatolia would be lining up for this. Not to say, of course, that, you know, I, of course, I think there'd be people, I don't want to use the word fanatics, but people who are like impassioned to go the, the mile, the extra mile, right? Um, like that. I don't know if it's true, but that story about origin. But, um, but yeah, I just don't, I can't, if there was a couple of people doing it, but I, I just can't imagine like the whole congregations up and agrees and uh, up and agrees like, Hey, you know, let's cut off our foreskin. Cause this is a really good idea. And I think that kind of understanding disability and, and bodily ideals that are relative to different cultures helps us ex explain kind of the conflict, which, which is happening in Galatians, at least one explanation. I don't know. Other people might not be convinced. Isaac, I wonder if you would sort of tell us a bit more about what you think perhaps the theological trajectories are of your work. I know you, um, you sort of mentioned earlier that you kind of ask some of these questions and that um, it might be that there's uh, work for disability theologians to kind of do in terms of um, then taking that in perhaps a slightly different direction. I wonder, could you just articulate sort of what some of those theological questions are for you? I mean, we talked a little bit about theodicy already um, and resurrection of of bodies but um yeah what else has kind of come up for you as you've been working on this yeah so i mean um 
one of the big ones, of course, is I have a large discussion about um, future disability. And, and so Paul's conception of resurrected bodies and whether disability has a place there. And I think that that's a huge area, of course. Canada Moss has worked on it, you know, in, in Mark 9 um, from a biblical studies point of view. But I know a lot of for a lot of disability theologians today, um, they argue theologically that, you know, their bodies are going to be carried forward. Maybe material wise will be different. But um, and maybe there won't be pain, but at least structure wise and function wise, um, it will be the same in resurrection. So I hope some of my work can be fruitful in those types of discussions. Um, one of the the other way is so with Paul and his use of his own short stature. Um, one of the things I wanted to get into is or I hope that it's influential for disability theology is this kind of, uh, is it's not so much for people who are disabled and already thinking about uh, disabled theology, but for people who are able-bodied or temporarily able-bodied who are kind of thinking about disabled um, uh, uh, living and thinking about the kind of uh, trauma that it has on um on people and especially thinking about like, you know, mental health, for example, it's not, it, it's kind of, you know, if you have a physical disability, of course it, it gets exacerbated by social factors, but then also uh, um, uh, uh, cognitive factors as well. And I think for Paul, you know, we see him being self-deprecating and uh, about his own short stature and using it, you know, if he's kind of like a, a short statured boxer, like punching himself in the arena. And, you know, I was alarmed by a lot of, commentators either thinking that it's funny or that um you know obviously he can't be punching himself um but there is a real question with paul uh, again not to overdiagnose. i don't want to retro diagnose paul but i mean he's been through a lot of trauma right so sometimes mm -hmm. i told the idea of you know is paul kind of going through some of the things we might call as ptsd right like mm -hmm. with all the kind of violence that he's experiencing the trauma and that's a affecting um, his his ministry. So on the one hand, I think it's it, it can be constructive theology wise for for saying, well, actually, you know, maybe some of our core Christian doctrines are actually, or not just Christian doctrines, but Christian texts are generated through this kind of violence and trauma. What do we do with that, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not just about Paul, you know, endorsing slavery, or um, but this is something a little bit more individualized, like well. You know, Paul seems to sometimes kind of endorse self-harm. You know, there's a passage in Philippians about Paul saying, you know, I'd much rather be with Christ. And I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. But for your sake, I'm going to stay here. Right. And I know some interpreters say, well, you know, is Paul going to throw his trial? Like, is he just going to say, this is it, I'm done. Um, and I think it raises important questions about, you know, you know, what does Paul think about self-killing? Um, what does, you know... Is, does that have a place in New Testament theology? Um, so I think that's those are some of the areas uh, uh, that I hope some people will pick up and explore. Um, yeah. I think that's a really helpful perspective. And um, I think something I feel like I see in Pauline scholarship a lot, um, particularly that sort of battle between, I guess, confessional readings of Paul and then reactions to that, and therefore Paul being kind of read in quite divisive ways. Um, a sort of, I think how sort of best to articulate this, but um, uh, a sort of reading 
a reading that is always kind of against Paul um, and kind of trying to mine for everything else. Uh, I'm trying not to like name a specific book <laughs> personally in doing this. Um, <laughs> let me phrase that bit again. <laughs> um, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's that sort of reaction, I suppose, to um, Paul being kind of uh, valorized, um, this kind of sort of uh, wave of reactionary readings that is therefore kind of hypercritical of Paul. And I think some of that is really helpful and kind of not meaning to sort of. Um, argue otherwise but actually I think that's quite a helpful reminder in terms of what you just talked about there in terms of um it's actually quite a lot of sensitive material that we're dealing with and sometimes that historical distance can make it um easy to gloss over um and so there's uh, it sort of feels like that brings that tension to the fore actually again in terms of Paul is just quite complicated um and so there's various things that we kind of might argue with him about and feel critical of um and perhaps in doing so, just being careful that we're sort of not losing that perspective of, um, yeah, thinking about a sort of real human being. However, what 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 exactly we're kind of left with in terms of the real Paul, in terms of quotation marks there. Um, but yeah, perhaps just reminding us of some sensitivity that it's helpful to have in in sort of reading those texts, and particularly in terms of thinking about how we interpret them in um, sort of communities now as they sort of continue to live. Um, so yeah, grateful for that perspective. I think that's a really useful um, thing for us sort of to, to be mulling over. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think it. I mean, I Paul's Paul's texts have been used, of course, for very very harmful things, and I think I, I completely understand the instinct to turn away from Paul and to and to mm. kind of problematize what's going on there. And I think some of the reticence towards thinking about focusing on Paul as a figure is because you know he is kind of like this great the great man amongst great men, right? Like so. <laughs> You know, and he's idealized in this way. And there's this idea that if you stare too much at Paul, you think or think too much about Paul as a person, you might start to sympathize with some of his uh, more harmful ideas in his letters or the kinds of mm. cultures that are enculturated in his writing. Um, but I, like you said, I think it's a little bit in between. Like he can be a person mm. and he can have, you know, his own things and his imperfections and still coexist in saying, you know, some of his writing is okay. Some of his writings you know, require a lot of interpretation or maybe setting aside or, um, but yeah, I, I think those find those extremes make it difficult when you're dealing with the texts. Mm. Yeah. I think trying to find that, yeah, that middle ground of critical dialogue and maintaining sensitivity in that is um, uh, tricky, but I think you model that really well in your work. So it's um, yeah, nice to have the space to sort of be able to unpack that in a bit more detail. Thanks. Yeah, I really like how you brought up um, just Paul as a complex person um, and how that can help us too, um, just as we live um, in the world, um, living as embodied people. So um, I think my question to you is, uh, what would you want um, like the church to take away from your studies, like in a practical way? Yeah, thank you for this. I think... Um... Just I, I guess the most basic thing is just to pay attention to disability and to listen to disabled folks and um, not just because you know like Paul was disabled therefore a core founder of Christianity you know was had, had you know had disabilities and therefore it should be a priority but you know the thing I think the pandemic really exacerbated um, the way that churches many communities, and I'm not trying to be 
not trying to overgeneralize or be judgmental, but I'm just trying to relay a lot of the things that I've read and the stories that I've heard from Christians uh, who have disabilities in, in different communities. And um, so I think that the thing from my work that I would um, like churches to take away is just to listen, that there are disabled perspectives and experiences and people and voices that are speaking like Paul and they've been speaking this whole time, but we haven't been paying attention to it. And um, and it's not just a matter of interpretation of, you know, how do we interpret texts? But I think it's a matter of justice, right? Like how are our congregations making space for these questions? One of the things in, you know, both in critical disability studies and disability theology is just the inevitability of disability. As humans age, um, as uh, bodies, you know, experience different things, whether, you know, economically, socially, um, uh, uh, health-wise, you know, disability comes. And uh, not wrestling with these, the core questions of, you know, identity, or what does it mean to have a bodily ideal, or, you know, are we trying to, are we trying to heal our bodies because we valorize or idolize a particular bodily ideal, right? Is that health, this kind of unspoken idol it's easy to talk about money it's easy to talk about sex but what about you know that kind of perfected body so i think it's just listening to voices of disability that disabled folks have been speaking they've been influencing our world uh, and especially christians with disabilities have a very important role to play in not just participating but shaping our space and shaping our theology shaping christian identity um that we would be at a huge loss to ignore them. Isaac, thank you so much for your time. Um, you know that I love your work. And so it's, um, yeah, just a real treat to have you on and be able to sort of talk about it in a bit more detail in this format. Um, I also want to plug uh, the music that you're working on at the moment, because um, I know that you've started recording again recently. Um, and it would just be really great to hear a little bit about that, do a little plug for it while we're here. Yeah, and for any of those of you who are interested, um, I also do music on the side. Um, under the artist name Young, it's my middle name, and uh, it's kind of not my first foray into uh, CCM or Christian music, but I try to write lyrics that are um, theologically informed and informed by, I guess, my own New Testament scholarship. So um, yeah, you can find me on all platforms, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Well, Dr. Soon, thanks so much for this conversation. It's been a blast. Uh, really uh, appreciate your time and hope everybody checks out your new book, A Disabled Apostle with OUP. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. Sorry, sorry it took so long. Oh, no, this was fabulous. <laughs> thanks again. <laughs>